Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Christine Moore, Assistant Professor of Second Language Acquisition at the University of Nottingham. Dr. Muir, welcome to Lost in Citations. Thank you very much, and thank you so much for inviting me to be on. This has been a, a work in progress uh, over the course of, seems like years now, but we, we finally <laughs> locked in a date. I'm very excited. It's taken us a little while, isn't it? But thrilled to, that we've finally been able to, to, to sit down together. And the book that we are talking about today is Directed Motivational Currents and Language Education. And when was this book published? The book was published uh, a little while back now, so in 2020. So before we get into the book, and again, if you'd like to purchase the book, there will be a link in the show notes. I always like to hear people's stories, so I'll kind of hand the floor over to you as far back as you'd like to go. Um, if you'd like to give us your history, what, what led you down this career path and kind of what, what brought you where you are today? Okay, so it's a big question, a, a, a lot to talk about potentially. But I, I, I started out sort of back in in school, um, learning German was the first second language that I started studying, hmm. and I had always this was during my A levels, so just before I went off to university, and I'd always sort of imagined myself as being someone who was able to speak other languages. That had always, even before I could, it always somehow been a part of my identity. Hmm. But I really struggled with it. I didn't do particularly well in my German A-level. I don't think, I certainly haven't re retained any of that competence now, much to sort of my regret. But it's something that sort of always sort of stuck with me as something that I, I wanted to be able to do that was somehow, as I say, somehow always there. And I had the, and I didn't, wasn't that successful. And I would, didn't go on to do that at university. So my undergraduate degree was music. I did a BA in music at the University of Southampton as a classical cellist. Oh no so sort of way! Languages. I, yeah, I, I I also studied classical music. Wow, you didn't you didn't mention that on the pre-show meeting. I like that. Bit of a surprise. <laughs> well, that was my interest in your background as well. So exactly, yeah, classical cellist, and that's what I did for many years. Well, cello is cello is way more interesting than the trumpet. That is cool. Cello, cello is my maybe my favorite instrument, but it just looks way too hard to play. But I love it. I love. Uh, did you listen to like Stephen Isserlis back in the day? That that was a big Stephen name. Stephen Isserlis, oh, so many big names. Absolutely. Yeah, cello cello is great. Do you, do you still play? Absolutely. Yeah, not professionally anymore, but I play with friends, tends to be over you know, a glass of wine over dinner. Um, but yeah, absolutely still play. And how oh. about you? Do you still play the trumpet? Um, not in a while. I, I, for a while, I kept doing my warm-up just because I was so used to doing my warm-up every day. And as I got better before I quit, uh, you know, I had a really good teacher that was into breathing and relaxing and it, it was almost sort of like a meditation. So yeah, I, I like to pick it up every now and again. I almost look at it more like a breathing exercise and a centering exercise, but I don't yeah. do any of like the hard physical technical stuff, uh, really, really easy stuff. But um, yeah, it's definitely something sort of a, almost meditative about playing scales, those kind of warm ups, like you say, that's quite sort of calming in a sense. Yeah, for sure. So when you were uh, so you when you were doing your undergraduate, is that something you were thinking about doing professionally? Yeah, absolutely. I think perhaps I didn't 
quite know what I wanted to do afterwards. Um, but absolutely. So my what I really enjoyed doing was not necessarily solo performance, but sort of small chamber music. So mm. I played in a string quartet that I absolutely loved doing. And that's something that I continued to do on after I graduated as well. Wow. I've played many, many brides down the aisle, for example, many, many weddings. That's uh, great. Yeah, with string quartets. So indeed, I had this whole other life. Um, I never once would have imagined sort of myself back then that this is what I would be doing now. All right. So when when did the, the shift occur? Well, so it was with uh, music. So I carried on with music. After I graduated, I spent a year living on the South Coast, depping for various orchestras, playing in a string quartet. And then I went abroad. I moved over to Russia to study at the Conservatory of Music in St. Oh Petersburg. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, indeed, there's a whole other life. So, it feels like a long time ago now, but just extraordinary memories. And so, I spent uh, time there. And while I was teaching there, that's where I started teaching English while I was studying there. Sorry. Ah, I see. Okay. To make a little bit extra money. To make a little bit extra money. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a funny story about how I sort of started teaching and I remember it really clearly the phone call that I got from uh, who was then the academic manager of the school that I went to work for uh, it was in, in the depths of winter so I've been sort of in, in Russia a couple of months so I remember so clearly we were on the bus coming back to the dormitory where we were living we'd been to a concert I don't remember what the concert was now it was perhaps at the Marinsky or the one of the concert halls but we were all bundled up in big coats right on the back of the bus and I had this phone call and it was somebody calling up essentially to say um, a language teacher, an English language teacher has just dropped out of a residential course uh, and we were desperately looking for an English language teacher. Hmm. Uh, and, and the course was starting in about two weeks or something. It was incredibly short time frames. And of course I said, you know, I don't know how to teach English. You know, I can teach them cello, you know, I can do all of that. But actually, you know, obviously I am a native speaker, but that doesn't mean that I can teach the language. And she said, I don't care. I'm just desperate for a teacher. Wait a second. So you were you were aware of that even back then? Because that was a shock to me when I first started teaching a second language. I had the opposite. Oh, really? I, I know how to teach it. I'm a native speaker. And I could, oh, oh, it was such a harsh reality. That's interesting. How did you have that perspective? Because I, I had the exact opposite. I was, oh, I can do this. Yeah. It's easy. It's a nope. I don't know. I, maybe it was... I can't tell you, but I felt very aware that I hadn't been trained. I hadn't had any experience in it as well. Maybe it was an experience thing too. I'd never taught anybody English before. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure, but I felt very conscious that I wasn't qualified to take on this position. Um, but she was very insistent uh, and I was a poor student. Uh, and so I said yes. Uh, and to this day perhaps the most ridiculous part of the story is to this day, we never managed to figure out how she got my number. It must have been <laughs> somebody who knew me, who knew somebody else, who knew somebody else, who knew her through sort of, I don't know, various networks. I don't know. Um, but anyhow, we, we never worked it out. But anyhow, so, so I, I went to this school. It was, um, they did residential courses over in Finland. Oh. So we would bus sort of groups of, of sort of Russian children, sort of younger teenagers over the border into Finland for sort of residential courses. So part of their time, they'd be studying English. Other course, other parts of the time, they might be doing sports activities or drama or sort of all different sorts of things. Different courses had different sort of parallel goals to the English goals. Wow. Um, 
and so it was it was great fun but I, there was sort of lots of huge sort of pros about being there you know sort of finland is sort of beautiful place and it was always way out in the country mm. uh, so i did many camps them sort of over the following years in the winter and in the summer so either beautiful sort of summer we would go out rowing on the lake when we weren't teaching and in the winter we'd sort of go out walking on the lake obviously everything would <laughs> freeze over in the snow um, but my first lesson there i remember again very vividly standing in front of a classroom of young language learners thinking i have absolutely no idea what i'm doing here or how to teach this group of students and i think to this day that was probably the most terrifying hour teaching hour i've had uh, in the classroom um and so after do you remember that, what you taught them I think I was just thinking as I was saying, I think it was something, because it was quite low level as well. So I think it was something to do with the time and routines and sort of getting them to talk about what they like to do. I think I remember vividly drawing clocks on the board um, <laughs> uh, and talking about sort of how do we, I'm not suggesting that this is my best, my best work by any means. <laughs> but I, I left the classroom and thought, okay, that was completely terrifying, <laughs> but I loved it as well. And so throughout the rest of that course, there were three other English language teachers. There was always four teachers on every course. And I sort of would grill them about, okay, about advice on how do I do it? How do I put a lesson together? What do I want to be focusing on? Because there weren't specific uh, curriculum. Mm. at the school it was very much a sort of conversational course um just try to sort of get students engaged in the language as well excited to learn english mm. um and so i i left that it, it was just a single sort of two-week course the first time i did it got back and thought i'm never doing that again i need to know what i'm doing um so i sort of tried to train train sort of try to learn independently as much as I could and get as much experience as I could so I went back to the school I obviously can't have been so bad they invited me back many times afterwards uh, thankfully and then sort of ultimately then once I left Russia I well I had that decision then is do I continue with music or do I perhaps transition over and think about going into English language teaching um, and ultimately that's the decision I made and that's when I Obviously, everybody will be sort of relieved to hear I did then go and get sort of proper qualifications to be able to teach. But that's how it started off. It's funny you mentioned about you. I was laughing when you said you remember drawing clocks because um, I, I had like a similar memory, not necessarily of what I was writing, but I remember I was standing in front of a group of people. And that's, you know, Americans and, and British people are, are much different. I think. Like I said, I had all this confidence. Oh, it's easy. And then I realized right away, it's like I had no idea what I was doing. And that's almost worse, right? And so I had this vivid memory of standing in front of a whiteboard, like writing on the whiteboard. And it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Because yes. I was like, what yes. the heck is going on? What are you even writing? Like I was looking at my arm writing something and I was like, I don't know what's going on here. Like they're all staring at me, like are expecting me to do something. And like I was spelling things wrong. Like I spelled yes. surprise wrong. Yes. And, and a student raised their hand. They said – uh, that's not how you spell surprise. I was like, yes, it is. Of course it is. Like, no, there's an R there. I was like, oh, really? Uh-oh. you have to say, I was just testing you. Well done. I didn't you know that trick the back then. I just My credibility <laughs> was out the window. <laughs> yeah, that, that was – all right. So after you – you got like um, a CELTA or something or you, you jumped into a master's degree? 
No, I actually did a TEFL course. So back then I, I looked at sort of various options, sort of CELTA among them, and didn't have the advice to know which one was better. I think in hindsight, I would have done the CELTA perhaps. But actually what I did was a, a TEFL qualification. But the TEFL qualification that I did was very comparable comparable to the CELTA. So it was four weeks, it was intense, there was observed teaching practice, there was, you know, sort of gra grammar instruction, you know, sort of all everything that I needed was in there in the same way as a CELTA. So it, it wasn't a CELTA, but it was a, a pretty rigorous TEFL qualification. And then when did you decide to take some advanced degrees? Well, I'd been teaching several years by that point. Um, I was living in Prague at the time. I was sort of teaching advanced English classes, various exam classes, of course, general conversation classes, so a little bit of everything. And I really felt that I wanted to take a next step somehow to be able mm -hmm. to sort of move forward, do something different maybe. So I never planned at that point, or maybe I never thought I'd have the opportunity to get into academia, but I knew I wanted to to move on somehow. I think my plan at the time was to, it was definitely to go back abroad. I never planned to stay in the UK when I moved back to the UK. Okay. Um, but the plan was to go back abroad, but basically to look for better teaching jobs. Mm. But I came back, I did my MSc in language teaching at the University of Edinburgh. Mm. And while I was doing that there, I, uh, I'd always, again, sort of, sort of similar to how I was saying, you know, I'd always sort of imagined that I could speak, you know, I was someone who could speak other languages, you know, sort of, that's always been part of my identity. You know, I'd always had this idea that I'd love to get into academia, you know, I'd love to be in that position where I could teach and research and sort of follow all of those sort of things that, you know, follow all of our curiosities, essentially, um, mm. but never thought I'd have that opportunity. And while I was doing my master's, that opportunity just sort of emerged. Um, the the support networks were were in place to allow me to do that. And I was working with a fantastic dissertation supervisor, um, looking at international posture, actually, looking at sort of motivation uh, mm. with that. And I sort of talked to him about the possibility of doing a PhD and whether he would be willing to supervise me. And he said, well, you know, yes, I would. But if you're interested in motivation, then, you know, really, you should be talking to Zoltan Dunier, for example, rather than doing it with me. You know, he, he, he wasn't a, a motivation researcher. That wasn't his main area of expertise. And so I said, you know, OK, you know, obviously, thank you very much for, for for the offer to, to supervise, but I might as well send an email to this, this Zoltan Dunier. And, and I did, I sent an email. I, I keep thinking maybe I should try and go back and find it in my inbox. I remember it, my memory of it is it was very excitable in the sense that, you know, I really want to, I'm interested in this and I want to look at this. I want to research these sort of all of these questions. And I remember sitting in again in the kitchen of the, the flat that I was renting with a friend and hitting send on it and then thinking, what have you done? That wasn't a professional email. That wasn't, you know, he's never going to reply to something so sort of, it felt so sort of scattered, I suppose. But anyway. Were, he, were you aware reply. of him at the time? Yeah, of course, absolutely. I think it had never crossed my mind to contact him because, I don't know, obviously, you know, such a big name, you know, you, I, I think it just never, no one had ever suggested it until then. I'd never something that, that I thought might be a possibility until that point. Mm. And so he, he responded? He did respond very quickly, which put my mind at a lot of ease and said, you know, I'm interested in talking further. And, you know, I went down to Nottingham and we met and, um, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. You know, it's 
It's very interesting, and I, and I noticed it through the course of doing this podcast. Like you, you have an impression of someone just based mm. on their writing or their their headshot or something. Uh-huh. Like for like for example, like Peter McIntyre, I was able to interview him, and he yes, I actually listened every, to that one. Yes, every paper I've ever written has just I've cited him, and <laughs> I just I just did not think he was that type of person. And I saw a webinar a couple months back. Zoltan Dornier did a uh, he did a, a talk for Tokyo Jout, I think, and uh, yes. he was talking mm-hmm. about an upcoming book he's doing about these really uh, amazing second language learners. And yes. he talked for an hour, and again, I listened to it, and, I, and it was such the opposite. It, it's weird; I don't even know <laughs> what it, what it is, but he was exactly like the opposite of what I thought he was going to be. Mm-hmm. I thought he was going to be this dark, sort of brooding character who's walking up and down the hallways with his <laughs> arms behind his back, like grunting uh-huh. and stuff. I don't know. Maybe it's just because his name, Why and the he's just. Been, I don't. I just that was just the. Imp- <laughs> I hope he doesn't <laughs> listen to this. That was just. <laughs> That was just the sort of character I imagined. Like yeah. you'd come up to him and say, Professor, I have this great idea for a PhD. And you go, hmm. And then he'll get, get back to you later or something. <laughs> but he was so uh, bubbly and vivacious and, excite- and excited and still seemed almost like with like childlike um, curiosity was, hadn't been – I imagine yeah. your childlike curiosity gets beaten out of you the older you get. But he seemed to like you know dissuade that notion, which was cool. Mm. Um, but I know I'm just totally going off on a tangent, but so, so then you were able to get into his, um, studio, I guess. And as a musician, I think, I think I brought this up in a previous interview as like a musician, when you go to study with a great teacher and like all, all of the, all of the members of that studio ha- are there, the central theme is the teacher. So I, I think maybe I, I asked, um, Ali al Hori, like, was there, was there some feeling of competition or like trying to elbow people out? And he said, no, no, it was, it was kind of cool because everyone's studying mm. different things and we'd meet together and it was a collaboration. Did you have yeah. that same kind of experience? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it works in the UK a little bit differently to sort of the US with the lab-based version as well. So absolutely, there was no um, competition. It was it was a great experience. I think while I was there, particularly absolutely at the same time as, as Ali, there was a lot of other motivation researchers. And we were sort of at similar positions in, in our research, all looking at slightly different things, but absolutely all interrelated. So it was a wonderful experience, a wonderful opportunity to be able to share those ideas, those, those stresses, those questions as well that we're all sort of looking at from different perspectives so it was it's sort of uh, a wonderful experience and a wonderful sort of time to be there as well i think now i'm, I'm, I'm just going to skip ahead real quick and then we'll kind of go back yeah, and please. get into the book but mm-hmm. now you're teaching at the university of nottingham i am yes and i mean correct me if i'm wrong but no one else from that group is so that- how how did that work out it was just by chance. It was not, I, I also never imagined necessarily staying here at the University of Nottingham. Um, you might sort of know that the sort of, I'm, I'm sure you know that, you know, sort of academia is quite a competitive, quite a difficult uh, sort of career route to get into, to, to take. Certainly in the UK, it's very competitive, the job market. Um, mm. When I when I finished my PhD, I the first year that I was applying for jobs, there were very few jobs around. Just by chance, I think I applied for them. I didn't get any. So I worked for an RA for a year on several different projects and then mm. sort of applied for everything, all of the positions that came out for the following academic year. 
Uh, and one of those was Nottingham. I wasn't expecting, there wasn't even meant to be a position at Nottingham available, but somebody moved. And so this position opened up. And so I went, you know, alongside other external candidates, went up for interview for this post, which was, yeah, it was absolutely nerve wracking sort of presenting to what had been sort of colleagues in the school, you know, m my research ideas, you know, my plans for the future, all of this. But it was, yeah, so I went through that external external process. It was by no means guaranteed, which would have made sort of continuing to work there a little bit uh, tricky, perhaps. But, you know, much to my sort of d delight, um, they offered me the job. So I'm for better or worse, I'm still here at Nottingham. Yeah. I mean, that's that's incredible. I mean, that's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I was looking at your bio before we started mm. recording and I guess the music thing did surprise me because on your Nottingham website, you don't mention anything about music. Mm. It says before Maybe joining the university then. of, yeah. Uh, before joining the university of Nottingham in 2016, I worked as an English language teacher and you talked about that. Mm -hmm. Where's the love for your, your, your ex, your ex musician inside of you? I don't know. I think perhaps when I wrote that, I felt like I should be presenting a very professional English. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe that's sort of the peer pressure of wanting to the way that we feel like we should present ourselves. But by the time, perhaps if anybody's listening, I will have updated it to include yeah, my background in music. Because, <laughs> because, I mean, we didn't talk about this before we started recording, but I mean, there's so many metaphors with language learning and music. And there's so yeah. many metaphors with DMCs and musicians. Um, I, I, inter I interviewed, um, Paul Evans that, that show hasn't been released yet, but he mm -hmm. was part of this really interesting study where they were interviewing people, young kids before they even started, um, studying music and they interviewed mm -hmm. them like in the beginning before they entered. And then they, they reached out to them like 10 years later. Yeah. And like, and like the people that had mentioned like their future self and had, yeah. and had said that they were going to keep doing it. Like they said, well, do you think you're still going to be playing when you're 18? The people that said that, mm. like overwhelmingly, like stayed with it, right? So okay. I, yeah. it's kind of a, it was kind of an interesting study, but like even like the idea of like sticking with the cello over the years and years and years and years and years and years and years, <laughs> right? It's like I, I do, when you're doing this research, I mean, are you? Are you thinking about other fields besides language learning? Because when I was reading your book, I thought mm. this 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 is can just be applied to anyone who's successful, really, in any field. Absolutely. So th the notion of a of a DMC or directed motivational current will absolutely apply to these same experiences of this kind of surges or sort of streams of motivation that we might have in absolutely any area of our life. I've obviously in the book, I'm focusing predominantly on experience in the context of language learning, particularly in, in the second part of the book where I work with English language teachers sort of trying to apply some of these theoretical ideas in the classroom. Um, but absolutely, it looks sort of we can experience DMCs or this kind of motivation when working towards a project in any area of our life. And I think that was where my initial fascination with it came, because it's not something some people that sort of I've spoken to over the years have experienced multiple DMCs. So I spoke to somebody, an extraordinary language learner who says who spoke nearly sort of double digits sort of um, number of languages to to sort of be. B1, I think B2 level. Um, and she was saying about how the, the way that she learned them was by essentially getting herself into a DMC every time. 
to try to get up to the level of competency that she wanted. And it's not something that I've really experienced. I think it's that fascination with something that's so immediately recognizable, but at the same time, something that isn't particularly common, I think more broadly, but particularly in my experience as well, that really sort of hooked my fascination and my interest in it. Well, you mentioned in the book that, you know, I think during the acknowledgements or at some at some point in the book, you, you sort of highlight that, yes, I finished this book and it was a great accomplishment, but this was not a DMC. <laughs> no, indeed. It was hard <laughs> so work. So that's, kind of, that's hard kind of work. interesting. <laughs> I would not, I would have thought that at some point in time, your research into DMC would have been sort of combined with your own, I mean, the, I don't know the statistics of people that don't finish PhDs or the statistics of people that don't finish books or the statistics of people that quit before they become a professor. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. brutal. It I think people brutal. can empathize with that. So I was thinking at some point in the book um, that you were involved in some sort of DMC experience yourself, but you, you made it clear that that was not the case. No, I think I'm quite sort of, in not necessarily a good way, sort of stubbornly persistent maybe. I think that's maybe a, a different way to, like the experience of a DMC is something that is largely positive. Sort of you, you get carried away, you get carried forward, even doing things sort of having to, you know, I don't know if you're experiencing this kind of motivation when you're training for a marathon or learning a language, you know, you have to get up very early in the morning and go for runs and you have to do it every day. And if you're learning, you have to learn, you know, long vocabulary lists, for example, you know, things that are pretty dull, you know, not necessarily always in and of themselves in any other context, something that we get enjoyment from, but within the context of a DMC, because they are part of this longer goal journey, actually they take on a different level of, um, sort of importance or sort of uh, relevance and they become something that become really enjoyable because when we're getting up you know first thing in the morning and doing that we don't need to make that decision are we going to do it today we're going to not we are because we're wrapped up in this current working towards this specific goal and so it's something that's really because of quite specific and very sort of often very overwhelmingly sort of experience is very sort of positive. Um, I'm not saying that my experience of writing the book was not a positive one, but perhaps not in the way that we might understand a DMC. All right. So for the listeners, I'm just going to read out the key definitions and core characteristics of a DMC, a directed motivational current. So yeah, please their do. goal slash vision orient orientedness, a DMC is <laughs> always directional and always has a clear end goal. The launch of a DMC. A DMC always has a clear starting point at which action tor towards a goal is triggered. A DMC structure. Action and engagement within DMCs are highly structured with regular feedback loops underpinning the self-propelling nature of the current. Uh, next, positive emotional loading. A key characteristic of DMCs is their acutely experienced positive emotionality. And then last, the end of DMCs. DMCs are always finite with motivation ceasing at varying rates, but via the same underlying processes. Of all of those five, that was the one mm -hmm. I had a question mark around. The end of the DMCs are always, yeah, the last one, always finite. Um, yeah. So that's the one I, I was the most interested talking to you about, because that seems mm -hmm. a bit counterintuitive. Like, for example, or maybe, maybe it's, maybe I actually, it's clarifying now talking to you, differentiating what a mm -hmm. DMC is from something else. Like Zoltan Dornier, right? 
Like, mm-hmm. is he in the midst of a DMC or is he just in a long career of publishing exceptional output, for example? Like, when you say, I, oh, it's finite, so mm. is every paper was a DMC? Is that kind of what you're saying? If he, if he, yeah. if he experienced it. It's a really good question. I think undoubtedly, as you described, it's sort of a long outstanding career. Uh, and I think that is something very different from the experience of a DMC. So if we can link that, the, the fact that a DMC is always finite to its goal orientedness, there's always a very specific end goal to it. So take the marathon example or the language example is a tricky one because it's, of course, language, learning a language is never finite. You know, there's always more to learn. But actually taking, I can give, you know, a specific example then. The, the, the person that I was talking about who had the extraordinary competence in, in multiple, multiple languages, one of the examples that she gave was a DMC that she experienced learning Polish. And it wasn't mm. that she necessarily wanted to learn Polish sort of more generally. There was a very specific reason that she wanted to learn it. And the DMC began when uh, the, the father of one of her friends sort of commented essentially that she wasn't really able to engage in conversation because she she didn't speak Polish. And that sort of comment mm. triggered this this sort of this outpouring of, of, of motivation, of, of engagement that she really followed then to the very, very specific goal of speaking to her friend's father, surprising him. And once she achieved that, think... the DMC dissipated. Oh, sorry. oh I see. So okay. Now, the, the, beginning, the, the beginning part of the DMC is very interesting to me. So as you mentioned in the book, there, there's, there's always a trigger and there's lots of different types of, of triggers is it essential that the person writes down their clear, definite aim or their clear goal? Because in that way, it would link to the finite process. Like, is it important that someone writes it down or is it they just have to communicate to their subconscious strong enough that these patterns, which you mentioned, like I wake up really early, early in the morning and mm. I go for a 20-minute jog. That's not something I'm planning on doing. I'm doing it because that's my life. Yes. Like, yeah. like, is there, is there some sort of communication to your subconscious is it, or, cause a lot of people say like, if you have a goal, you should write it down. And, it's a really good once, question. Yeah. So do you, is that something that do you, someone have to write it down or as long as you just have a strong, clear view of what your goal is, that's enough. So I think it's a good question. You're absolutely right. You know, when we make sort of goals for ourselves, we we write them down because they become tangible that way, don't they? We become somehow accountable because we can see it written down on the page. I think it's not necessary that it has to be written down in this context. And we can sort of help to understand it by thinking about the notion of self-concordant goals. So self-concordant goals are selves, that a goal, sorry, that belong to the self in a much deeper sense. They're very deeply seated. They're very identity relevant. They they sort of um, burrow down to the core of who we really are. So if we take the example of, of this person learning Polish, that sort of comment wouldn't have necessarily sparked the same reaction in somebody else. But it was, you know, she was someone who prided herself on being able to speak lots of languages, being able to learn languages uh, in the way that she had sort of amazingly sort of trained herself to be able to do. And when somebody said to her that she she wasn't able to do it, 
in truth, I don't know if she wrote it down or not, but I do know that it was something that remained very, very present in her thinking and her consciousness because it linked into such a, a broader and sort of identity relevant sort of deep goal that she had, something that she sort of believed about herself. See, this is a really interesting conversation because I, I now you might not get this because you know you're from the UK, but there's a very, very successful college American football coach, and he's won okay. like seven championships. And one of his mm-hmm. best friends is a very, very successful NFL coach, and he's won six championships. And they had this mm-hmm. documentary where they kind of followed their careers, and they've been at it for like forty years, and mm-hmm. they just both talked and talked and talked. And so, like these guys are never going to quit. Like there, there is no, like there, there is no end point, right? They like at a certain point, they had this standard of excellence and they like the challenge and every year is a new challenge and they like the competition and they just have this way that they think if you follow this way at a high exceptional way, you will succeed. Right. So my question is when does like, because if you, like you said in the book, like you, you set out on uh, – there's a trigger. You set out on a goal, okay? And then all yeah. of a sudden things start to become subconscious. You, you have these patterns that take place automatically mm-hmm. because you're working towards this goal. You're not like thinking uh-huh. about it, right? And yeah. then after a certain point, like um, where does the DMC end? And it's just like – you talked about identity just now. Where does yeah. the DMC end? And then it's just like that's who you are, right? So if you yeah. like wrote like a down a goal, I want to make $10 million, right? And you start yep. working towards that goal and you keep working towards that goal. And then all of a sudden you made $10 million, but now you're a different person because now you know how to make money. You're not going to stop, right? No, like, oh, absolutely. I made $10 million. Like, so like where, where does that – where does it cross – where does it like cross over? No, you're absolutely right. I think the point with the DMC is that it's always over and above somebody's sort of what would be to them their normal, if we can use the term, sort of motivational state maybe. So that, And that's going to vary – person by person, isn't it? In exactly the way that you've described, you know, different people are differently motivated. And of course, we're all differently motivated in different areas of our lives as well, aren't we? So something that is sort of someone who's generally very, very highly motivated in exactly the way that you describe is not necessarily experiencing a DMC. A DMC is always going to be over and above that, something that sort of takes over. Um, somebody sort of in that kind of, you know, the, the examples that you've given, somebody who is that intensely driven about it, maybe there are elements of, of a DMC within that. I'm not knowing the, the context, I'm sort of not really able to, to, to say much on it. But actually, you know, we have seen DMCs that, that last for a very, very long time. But remember as well that a DMC, it's quite often when people achieve a goal or for whatever reason, you know, a DMC might break down, people might not get it to that specific end goal. Um, people have reported, you know, it's, a DMC, it's, it's exhausting, right? Sort of getting up every morning, mm. even if you enjoy it at the time, it's still sort of physically exhausting. Mentally, it can be draining as well. And so actually when it finishes, you know, it's not something that we could necessarily keep up forever. And I think that's mm. something, particularly when we think about the the pedagogical implications of it. And I know that I think we're going to go on to talk about that in, in a little bit. But thinking about it, relating it to the classroom, that's, again, something that I've always been very, very aware of as well, is that we want to really manage that end, sort of that finishing of any DMC for, for, for lots of reasons. So 
because we don't want students to crash at the end of it and sort of be completely exhausted and sort of almost maybe look back to resent that they gave all of that time. Um, to be able to sort of recognise everything that they achieved uh, through that, I think I think that's particularly with sort of language learning in sort of educational context. And that's something that we really saw sort of come out of the, the book that students didn't necessarily realise everything that they'd achieved because they were wrapped up in this thing. So that sort of period of reflection was important. And then sort of finally, and tapping in again to exactly what you were talking about, is that it would sort of ideally in in that kind of thinking about language learning as a as a long term as a infinite sort of endeavor if after a dmc something can change so that we maybe finish that base motivational level is maybe a little bit higher than it was prior or perhaps we're able to keep on some of those habits that became habitualized that became sort of ritualistic throughout a dmc maybe they you know we can encourage, you know, students to continue listening to that English podcast on the way into work in the morning, not necessarily in the context of a DMC, but actually being able to keep up with some of those things started. Um, it's not going to be able to do it with everything because, of course, our time and resources and our energy, you know, we could, it's going to go to other places. But that's a really interesting sort of questions, I think, thinking about, you know, well, what can we take from a DMC that might be more stable moving forwards? I mean, have you ever experienced a DMC? That's a really good question. And it's one that sort of inevitably, you know, sort of kept coming up, looking at it. And I don't have, and I think this is partly why the topic is so fascinating for me, is because I don't remember having a standout DMC moment in terms of sort of working to a goal. Um, and I think this is something interesting it's one of the things looking at in the book as well is well trying to understand just how commonly experienced DMCs are because every time we mm. sort of talk to I think anybody that I've talked to about sort of these research ideas um, with has sort of said oh yeah I recognize that either I've experienced that or I've seen somebody else experience it um, and so it's so sort of present in our consciousness but it's it's not something that I've had multiple experiences of and I think that is sort of fed the curiosity in me i think have you do you think is it something that you yeah i think i think i did when um i was i was in a place in my life where we had my wife and i had just moved somewhere and we had a really you know young young daughter at home and the job i thought i was gonna get seemed really good at the time <laughs> and then we moved and and then everything was cool and we we like got this you know we were renting a house and the the, the price was affordable because my wife was working and i got this job i really liked and and my wife like soon after like lost her job like suddenly um and then about a week into this job that i had uh the trains in japan are rarely late like if they're late, like they, they will print out like a certificate of lateness to show your boss because they're yeah. just never late. Right. And so within the first two weeks of working at this place, uh, the train, the train was late and it happened twice. And so Gosh. I called the, the company I was working for and I said, look, the train's late. So, um, I guess I'll just bring in the certificate when I come. And so I had to miss lessons cause my job was teaching. Right. Uh -huh. And at the time, it was like I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And then my manager brings me into an office, and mm. and I was living like an hour away or something, right? And my, my yeah. manager brings me into the office, and she says, she says, if you're late again, you're like, 
you're going to lose your job. And I was like, what? <laughs> and now I think that was my trigger. Okay. Almost immediately I started looking for master's degrees because I thought this is not good. Like I have to get out of this job and I have to figure out a way to, to protect the job I have. So I had to take these steps to do that. And then, mm. yeah, it was like a 17 month, 17 month process and I got my master's degree yeah. and then I got the job that I'm teaching now. And, um, and I do kind of remember that feeling when I – it wasn't even that I finished the master's. It was when I got the new job. Yeah. And there was this sort of like feeling I've never had before. It was like, oh, I did it. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations. So may, maybe that was it. Can a DMC last 17 months? I think so. I, I, I think it's – and it's a really interesting question. I, I think I certainly wouldn't want to suggest I necessarily have all the answers as well. It's a sort of relatively sort of new research area. And, you know, I really sort of hope um, – you know, the more research that comes out, the more understanding that we'll have. I think, yes. Um, but I think, well, I mean, you tell me, it must have been, how did you feel it, feeling good at the end of it? But that's quite a long time to keep up that level of intensity. Or do you think perhaps you had one uh, sort of experiences described by some people in the book were that there was, it lasted over a very long period of time, but it, there were specific periods in that time where that were much more intense than others where it was really and then it faded no, I, a little bit and then it really came back for that extended time no it was strong because i hated the job the whole time and the mat and you know doing a master's degree while working full-time is hard on its own right it's tough but yes, that was like not tough. like everything was like i i, I kind of went when i was reading parts of the book i did kind of go into autopilot yeah like i just i had to do this amount of work on the way to the to work i had you know in my lunch breaks i went to the coffee shop and i wrote a paper and i it was just it wasn't even that i thought it was difficult or i thought anything i just thought yeah. i need to get out of this job i need a better job this is the path of least resistance i need to take out a loan i need to do this it was everything was like yeah. step by step by step mm. until i finished until i finished it and uh yeah it was it was a great feeling when it was but yeah a lot of things did go into autopilot and I actually like talked to my feeling? wife like mm. oh sorry um when I, I talked to my wife this summer and she mm -hmm. was like she told me like actually that was like a bad time in our relationship mm. and because she said like you just weren't there anymore like I just yeah. like I I was like a, kind of like a walking zombie I guess but the point yeah. was I was trying to get our family to a better situation right it wasn't just for myself yeah again it brings yeah. up to the book like I was it was like I thought it was like you know but yeah, it was a good feeling, but I just, yeah, I kind of put my head down. I didn't have a lot of time or whatever, but I, I finished the tasks I needed to do. And it that's did, exactly, when it was over, it felt amazing. That's exactly the question that I was going to ask you. Did, so it felt amazing when it was over, but the experience of it at the time, was it enjoyable? Did you enjoy it? Because you could feel yourself getting closer towards that goal or was it something that was a more sort of numb autopilot? It was like a little bit of both um, mm -hmm. because every step of the way, I thought it was closer to leaving the job I was in. And I'm not the yeah. per type of person that likes to complain without action. So the more yeah. things I was doing, the less time there was to complain. Like I, at the end of the day, every night, I thought I'm doing everything I can to get out of this situation. Yeah. And so that felt good. But it's I don't think it was like a happy time. <laughs> Yeah, it's such an interesting and it's such a and actually this is exactly the kind of thing that you're describing is exactly one of the really important things to come out of the book, I think, is that prior to sort of sort of delving into it, sort of conducting the studies that, that I 
um, report on in the book, it was DMCs were described and sort of reported to us as being almost wholly positive in the sense mm. of, you know, I was doing it, it was hard work, but it was it was worth it. And actually, in a sense, you've described the, the sort of worth it bit, but actually some of the other realities, because of course, if you're this um, sort of, you have that sort of tunnel vision to something that means that you cannot be able to see or recognize or engage with other things in life. I think that's just the reality of, 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 of sort of being human, isn't it? We only sort of, we only have so much attention that we're able to give. And when something is, when we're focused on a DMC in this way, other things have to fall away. Um, and something that came up sort of looking uh, in the, it was the first study, this sort of the, 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 the global study looking to try to understand how widely relevant the DMC sort of experience was and how sort of recognizable it was. This is something that started to come out much more clearly in a way that it hadn't really previously. People saying that it was very positive. I achieved this. I was so proud of myself. You know, it was an extraordinary experience, but it was really tough. There was something else in there. And actually these sort of experiences came out in a way that they hadn't. I think it's such an important thing that I really hope will be a part of the research agenda going forwards, particularly now now that we know it's there. I think we have no excuse to sort of focus on, and, and I think I'm a very sort of practical person, sort of thinking about focusing on the sort of, particularly with DMCs, it's a topic that you can, or that one can sort of get carried away with, this incredible, you know, stream of motivation. It's, it's beautifully experienced, but of course, there's a practical reality to that and my interest in, in sort of any kind of theoretical concept you know I, as you know, we were saying I started out as an English language teacher at heart I think I'll always be an English language teacher my interest in in anything that I research is is essentially how can we put it to work how can we apply it to second language or, or third or fourth or heritage or you know whatever that teaching context is for the benefit of teachers and learners and so when we're thinking about translating these ideas through the context of, of project work of sort of group projects that's how we sort of understood we might be sort of best to translate this into the classroom that was something that I was very very aware of we want to be able to manage you know, students' experiences of a DMC. So if they're going to experience a, a group DMC, there's a huge amount of potential for that. Potential in terms of motivation, in terms of the level of engagement students demonstrate with their studies, with the time they spent on it, with the, the enjoyment they reported of it. But of course, it, it's tough and there's that other side and that pressure can become a little bit too much. It can become a lot. And so I've worked with two absolutely incredible language teachers, uh, Jessica Florence and David Leach, and they were incredibly instrumental and, and aware as well of, of managing that within the classroom. So I think absolutely that there's massive potential for, for applying these things and sort of helping learners to experience this kind of um, sort of motivational phenomenon in the context of their language learning. But the, the sort of the dark side of DMCs is something, particularly when we're thinking about bringing these ideas into classrooms, is something that we must all be so, so aware of. Well, that's why the book is really interesting. And again, I, I recommend people to to buy it. Again, it's Directional Motivational Currents and Language Education. If you'd like to buy it, there's a link in the show notes. The reason why I really like it is because I could read it and I could think about myself and I could think about other successful people. And then we bring it back to the language classroom. Now, in fairness, the things that I'm talking about myself and like even if you're talking about like Alex Honold from, from Free Solo, I think – 
he was more towards what I'm talking about. But if you're talking mm. about in the context of the language classroom and you, and you brought yeah. up that, um, that data collection about the students that were raising money for ca- cancer council. And uh, it was an overwhelmingly positive experience. So in the context of like a, a language learning environment or during the course mm. of a 12 week term and you, you trigger the students through a project and you collaborate mm. and you get them all to work towards a common goal. I yeah. think it's fair to say that that would be overwhelmingly positive. Like I, 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 it can be, it can, we can have a conversation Two two things can be true. Someone can have a dark side individually, but as in in the context of the book, which is you know we're talking about language education, yeah, I, I could see how it could be overwhelmingly positive. I think the really important thing here is that we're just aware of the potential for it, and it's something that I'm quite explicit about. So it, it was, um, you know, an overwhelmingly positive experience for for students, but there was individual variation within that. You know, some students mm-hmm. said, you know, it's it was great, but I, I don't want to do another one straight away because I need to rest now. <laughs> I'm tired. It was great. And the <laughs> level of pressure was managed appropriately. And, you know, everything came together. It, it was a five week language course. And okay. uh, at the end of it, they sort of um, said, you know, it'd be great to do it again, but maybe not straight away. Um, other students said, I only want to study this way now. I don't want to have normal classes again. And so it was, there was definitely that individual mm. variation. So I'm, I certainly, in sort of recognizing it, it's not sort of sounding sort of, sort of, um, uh, I said, death knolls against bring it into the classroom, but it's about having that awareness. And that's something that I'm quite explicit about in the book and thinking about the challenges that we faced when implementing it in this specific context. And then talking about in this specific context, again, how do we manage those challenges and reflecting also how in other contexts with different project goals, with different project structures as well, how it might be applied uh, in, in different contexts. And I think moving forward in, the, in sort of thinking about developing DMC research, that's something that's really important as well, is sort of looking at sort of had the most extraordinary experience working with Jessica and David and sort of they have my eternal thanks um, for their sort of enthusiasm and being involved in in the project and indeed we've presented together we published together, they sort of have gone on to conduct their own sort of independent research as well and I think to drive this agenda forward so important is you know practitioner research into these sort of ideas because you know something like like the, the book is able to do a lot but it's not able to comment on every discrete specific classroom context around the world and actually the way to really develop understanding with these sort of contexts is by, you know, individual teachers researching and developing communities to practice things that is relevant to specific contexts. And of course, academia doesn't value this kind of research. I think it should, but you know, it doesn't for, for lots and lots of reasons. But actually, it's something that I really sort of hope. And there's obviously sort of calls much more broadly in the field as well to be able to sort of support not only teachers conducting their own research in the classroom, but also of opening up dialogues and sort of doors almost between the research that's conducted in the ivory tower of academia, if you will, and teachers in real classrooms who either are not able to access it because it's held behind firewalls, for example, for journal articles, or because, you know, teachers are incredibly busy, don't have time to wade through academic research. So it's about sort of May building those links as well, and I think that will be obviously there are incredibly interesting sort of theoretical um, 
uh, questions surrounding DMCs that will probably be researched much more predominantly by academics. But I think there's huge research opportunities and um, of a future, I hope, sort of of individual teachers looking at these questions, sort of researching it. And that's something I really hope the book has been able to demonstrate one way to go about that in terms of reflecting well, on if you're gonna give, what went well and what didn't. If you're going to give advice to teachers to implement the strategy in their classroom as far as designing projects and, and fostering a, an atmosphere that might trigger a DMC, can you give yeah. some, some practical tips for someone like in the beginning of a term or how they might you know, con construct a curriculum or, or, or tips that they, they can use that might, whether it triggers a DMC or not, how it can like foster a, a great environment in their classroom? Yeah, I think that's quite a point point when you say whether it triggers a DMC or not. I, d I think a well-designed project is always going to have, you know, huge potential for learners. So I think whether it is a DMC or not, it, in a sense, is almost a, a moot point, whether it sort of gets to that, whether we can mm -hmm. call it a DMC. It's, it's not necessarily as relevant as what the students are able to get from it. So I think, uh, absolutely, I think, so in terms of sort of advice, I think, you know, you know your context much better than I do. And so, you know, it needs to be sort of adapted in ways that I'm not able to be specific about in the book. But actually what mm. I try to do instead is, so we've got these sort of seven frameworks for focused interventions and that we, we, we propose these in, in the 2016 book. And what I do in this book is take just one of them and see if it works essentially when we propose these seven, mm -hmm. these frameworks, these different uh, project structures, essentially, these different project templates, we sort of designed them in a way that was rooted in DMC theory that we hoped would have relevance, but that we didn't quite know. They, they, they hadn't been t sort of empirically tested, and that's what I do in this book. I take one of them. We designed a project in tandem with Jessica and David, and their input in the design of that project was, was invaluable because, of course, they are in that context in a way that I wasn't. And so mm. other advice, again, then, would be to have it sort of set up um, at the beginning, sort of know where it is. We talked a little bit about triggers earlier, and we sort of talked about the, the that negative comment, that sort of form of reactance, almost that trigger to 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 this person learning Polish. And in the language classroom, I think the trigger works a little bit differently. We've talked about it in the context of being a sort of integrated trigger. So rather than starting a language course, then something happening unexpectedly, which triggers it, we need to be more proactive about it. So we need to think about this trigger as integrated in sort of the introduction, the presentation of the project itself. So it's understanding, potentially working with students to design a project, to develop a project goal or outcome. And in the book, I'm very explicit about different types of projects, different templates, different end goals. So not necessarily always working towards an end goal of I don't know, a play or a performance or a, a newspaper blog. It might be a project that is much more about a sort of intellectual treasure hunt or something that is related to the specific environment or context that you're teaching in, that students are learning in. I think there are different ways that we can design projects. So I think, but having enough of it at the beginning so you can get students excited from the outset 
I think if they're not excited from the beginning when you present a project, it can be quite difficult to pull them aboard later. I think we've all, I'm sure every language teacher has had that experience when mm. we've designed something that we think is great and we go into the classroom and we sort of present this and we say, look at this brilliant thing we're going to do. And students go, uh, okay, you know, I, I guess. And it's sort of finding that way to sort of pull them in. And, and part of that's going to be knowing the context, knowing the students and potentially even in collaboration with them. All right. Before I ask your advice for up and coming academics, I just have to highlight how cool the book started when you when you talked about the, <laughs> the documentary Free Solo, mm. which I watched and had sweaty palms the entire time. The whole um, time. Yeah. <laughs> so first of all, if, if, if you haven't watched that documentary, people should should go out and watch it immediately. It is one of it's got to be top five movie I've ever watched in my life. It's 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 insanity, and and there's so many crazy things in that in in that documentary. One where he talks about how there's this whole culture of uh, free solo, and there's going to be a group of people that are against the documentary because the art of free solo is you go off and do it by yourself. Mind you, some people go off and do it by themselves and just die. And he talked about how he, you know, the art of real free soloing is actually, you know, you go out in the mountains and you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. And like, that's when you can re- reach your like peak performance. That in itself was scary. The other cool thing about the documentary is how he starts up the first ascent and he, he has, he has enough foresight to just to, to stop. Yeah. Like he had yeah. enough ego or whatever, or enough skill mm-hmm. to quit, which I was really impressed by. Like, and, and I guess, yeah, it's your, that must've been a weird moment for him as well. Cause then he knows the cameras are all staged and he knows, but he was like, you know what? Nope. It's not yeah. happening. I'm out. Yeah. And that was part of the movie. And then, and then finally it, it's done. And it, and like when it was finally done, he had a perfect day. Everything went smooth, you know, gets to the top of the mountain. He calls his girlfriend. Mind you, there's a, there's other scene where he's like he's like in Las Vegas looking for a house with his girlfriend, and he's he's like a zombie, right? He's like he doesn't he doesn't, he's not even there. She's like, oh, what do you think about this refrigerator? He's like, uh, I don't know. He's like he's like, he wants to get back into his truck and eat food with a spatula, right? That movie think, yeah, was insane, and I'm so, uh, <laughs> so I'm glad you. I was I, I wasn't expecting not- that. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, go on. Go on. But that, that when I opened the book and started reading, I just wasn't expecting it to start that way. So I'm, I, I take my hat off to you. Like I think some yeah. books, especially in academia, are just so dry from the jump. Mm. And it's like they don't have to be. Like in, in that way, it kind of showed your colors as a teacher, right? It's like I could see that being like a Thanks. lesson on DMCs. You mm. would start that – you would show a scene from that from that movie or you would like mm. show a picture of him like – climbing like a crevice that's a thousand meters long and you just started discussion about it so very 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 cool that you started the book like that it was a big surprise oh, thank you very much and i'm glad the, the documentary is, is is completely extraordinary and it really sort of captures the the essence of sort of that surge of motivation that sort of takes over um yeah absolutely i, I think perhaps you maybe wasn't interested in in the the fridge or whatever it was, maybe he just, in any context, wouldn't necessarily have been too interested in what that fridge was. Um, 
but but absolutely I, I think it, it's that story that experience sort of encapsulates in terms of introducing the idea of what a DMC is obviously we sort of in the book I go on to talk about it um or sort of be more specific or sort of pin it down in a way that his experience is so sort of grandiose that is is helpful in sort of tapping into what that kind of thing is exactly that hook and then obviously we look at it in more detail and sort of look at the theoretical underpinnings of that you know how how is it that we can possibly keep this up for so long you know how is it what what is it that underpins that and there's fascinating research um sort of traditions that 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 I talk about in, in the book that all sort of contribute to our understanding of DMCs so I'm, I'm so pleased that you enjoyed it you know what a huge compliment thank you so much my hands are sweating just thinking about that movie I'm just remembering <laughs> some of the shots of him climbing that wall it's like it's cr- anyway um all right I've watched let's it end with times this. and I panic um, every time <laughs> uh what what is your advice for some up-and-coming academics as far as um time management like you said you're you're in the middle of 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 welcome week or something and or like how do you manage your time what's your schedule like how do you balance everything um just any tips you've learned along the way as far as you know just an academic career is really i think it's really difficult especially with your teaching load and your research load and there's Mm. there's not enough hours in the day so do you have any advice for people i think you you absolutely right. there aren't enough hours in the day and it's I, I wish I had sort of magic tricks or magic beans or words of wisdom and you know it, it is tough and it can be really hard to manage that as you said exactly so right here at University of Nottingham now it's, it's welcome week we have thousands thousands of students sort of joining us at the university yesterday I met with um, lots of wonderfully enthusiastic first years uh, which was fantastic um, but lots of lots of competing demands for time exactly as you say and it's there isn't a, a sort of a magic way to do it and I think the way that we all manage it changes over time and I'm sure you know have this the same experiences as well you know sometimes teaching has to take something of a priority other times research is able to take that priority and I think it's perhaps recognizing when that happens, to be able to take the opportunity to be able to do that, to sort of not be afraid to say, okay, I, I can't think about X this week, so I need to focus on Y. But then it's also recognizing that having done that, we need to now make time for Y. So it's about sort of ring fencing that time a little bit. And also understanding, and I think this is something certainly that uh, has taken sort of a long time and perhaps, you know, continuing to sort of learn is, is how to prioritize different things. Some things, you know, I think, you know, as researchers and teachers, we want to do everything to the best of our ability. And there are some things that don't have to be done in that way or that we can manage in a way. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's also understanding what they are. And I think that's the real challenge, isn't it? You know, understanding where and it's not about cutting corners, but it's about, as you say, there's only so many hours in a day. And it's thinking about what's the way that we can use them, that we can get, not just we can get, but our students can get, you know, our our colleagues can get the the, the most benefit from them. Um, So I wish I had that. You said that. No, you said that perfectly. You said that (laughs) perfectly because uh, translated to to my voice would be like, just don't Mm. try your best and everything, which is terrible advice. So no, that's terrible advice. That's that's not what I mean to say at all. (laughs) can't finish that way goodness <laughs> no no i i just mean you you said it better than me like my don't don't listen to <laughs> be kind to yourself um all right so the book recognize that we can't yes. do everything but um, be kind pr- <laughs> and prioritize um, prioritize okay. exactly 
little recognize that we can't do everything the, uh, and forgive ourselves when we don't all right the name of the book is directed motivational currents and language education please uh, purchase it today it's well worth your time and money and if you want to purchase it there's a link in the show notes uh dr muir thank you so much for coming on lost in citations Thank you so much for inviting me. And thanks. Yeah, I'm so pleased we're able to find the time at last. It's brilliant. Thank you. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.